If uh, as you're finishing passing those baskets and the offering, would you go ahead and if you have a Bible, open it to Daniel chapter six. We're going to take some time to to look at a, a passage that's probably familiar to many of you this morning. But before we do that, uh, I'd actually like to to pause and pray for one more thing. You think, wow, that's that's a lot of prayer. <laughs> yeah, it is. Pray for kids. Pray for offering. And now I want to pray for something just as significant as those. So as we, you know, go into the rhythms of our life, so many times when you turn on the news or you see stuff on the internet, uh, it becomes kind of common because you see it and you hear it all the time. And a lot of that has to do with things that happen outside of our country. Uh, and that is that you see stuff and turmoil and wars and all kind of stuff that happens somewhere else. And there's a tendency for us to tune it out and forget that there's a world around us that, that even Tim just mentioned about that doesn't even have the freedom to do what we're doing right now. Two, two places in particular I'd just like to pause before we jump into Daniel 6 this morning that I'd like to pray for is Egypt and Syria. Two very, very pivotal nations in the Middle East that are going through great turmoil right now. So if you obviously are aware of in Egypt right now, because of the upheaval of the government and the instability there, um, there's a rise in violence and the loss of life. And, and part of that is actually there's become some more persecution of the church. Over the last couple of weeks, they've said, and maybe the last month, there's about 60 churches that have been burned. Uh, there's been people who are believers who've lost their lives. And so in that chaos, there's this persecution. So we want to pray for that. But I also want you to understand that we don't just pray for the church and pray for Christians because God loves people. He doesn't look at a Christian and say, I love you more. He loves people. And that's why his desire is for everyone to come back to God through Jesus. But in Syria right now, if you've been watching the news, obviously there's turmoil there and, and this infighting and the civil war that's going on there. And then just the last couple of weeks, a report that's come out that, that most likely their government there actually used chemical weapons on its own people. And so we need to pray for peace because these are, these, I, I can't fathom what that would be like to have our government treat us that way. And so we need to pray because far beyond military might, far beyond anything we can strategize or even things that we can do as a nation, God's peace needs to reign in the hearts of people. God's protection needs to be a covering over the lives of people. And so we want to pray for that this morning. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you demonstrated the Father's love when you came into the world and that you love people so much that you're willing to give your life for all people. And that's why, Lord, throughout the scriptures, we always see the word nation, which talks about all people. And so, Lord, we know that today your heart breaks for the people of Syria and the people of Egypt because of what they're walking through. And so, Lord, we pray for your presence to be known in those countries. Lord, I pray in Egypt where... Lord, the dividing line has always been about religion. It's been about Christian and Muslim, and it's been about differences, and it's been about the separation, and it's been about trying to vie for power. I pray, Lord, that in the upheaval of what Egypt is going through, that you would bring peace and stability and clarity and calm, and that you would protect the lives of people. I pray, Lord, that as you protect the churches and believers, I know that one of the things that's crazy is that even in the midst of persecution, you let the church grow. The church grows, Lord, in the midst of that. So I pray the church in Egypt, although they've lost buildings and some have lost their lives, that the advance of the gospel would accelerate, Lord, throughout that nation. And as well for Syria, Lord, we pray for peace. Lord, I pray for protection over people, over even children who have suffered, Lord, because of this war. I pray, Lord, that you would bring reason and understanding and clarity and compassion to a government that's trying to hang on to power. And that somehow, Lord, there would be peace in the midst of what seems like an impossible situation. But nothing is impossible for you. 
And so, Lord, even in Syria and its upheaval, I pray, Lord, that the gospel would spread and that people, although there may be turmoil around them, they would find a deep peace within them as they discover you, Jesus, in their lives. So, Lord, be with these nations, be with Syria, be with Egypt. Allow your purpose, your opportunity to be achieved, Lord, in what's going on in these nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, as I mentioned, we're in Daniel chapter 6. As we've been walking through the last few weeks, this series of looking at our ordinary lives and understanding that as we surrender to God in our life, He does extraordinary things. So as we've walked through a number of different stories throughout the Old Testament, and we've kind of through Israel's history, we come to Daniel. And today we're going to look at Daniel 6, which for many people is a very familiar story. It's the story where Daniel ends up in a den of lions for doing the right thing before God. He ends up with his life on the line. And what, I, what we're going to do is walking through this passage today is to watch what Daniel did in his own life that demonstrates for you and I one of the biggest struggles we have. And that is, do I really trust God? Not do I say that I trust God or I say that I have faith, but do I really trust God to the core of who I am? And this is hard for us because so much of our life, so much that what we live in is built to avoid situations just like this, what we're going to read about. That everything that we do in our life really has to do so many times really the opposite of of faith and trust is I try to avoid all situations where I get in over my head. I try to make sure that I always keep an option open or that I have something to fall back on. That I have a, there's a plan A, but I want to make sure that I have a plan B because I don't want to be caught unaware or unprepared for what might happen to me. So we make up our life consistent of how do I avoid loss, suffering, pain, challenges. It's the very thing that you experience, even though you don't realize it, every time you get into your car. So when you, we finish today and you get into your vehicle, especially the newer the vehicle is, the more that you're going to experience this, that you're getting into a little bubble that is built on the concept of avoidance. It's avoiding you losing your life. It's avoiding you being injured. And so you get into your car and you put a seatbelt on. At least you should put a seatbelt on. And when you put that seatbelt on, you are putting that on to avoid, if you were in an accident, that somehow you would be thrown from your vehicle or injured. You're sitting in front of an undeployed airbag that, should you get in an accident, will support you and help you to avoid further injury. Some cars have cameras on the back so that when you put it in reverse, that you don't bump into somebody or something. Other cars actually have sensors that have automatic brake systems. So if you're not paying attention, it will actually brake for you. Or if you go to make a lane change and there's somebody in your blind spot, it will let you know so that you can avoid them. Now, we like that when it comes to cars. The challenge is, sometimes we like that when it comes to faith. That we want to step into our faith vehicle and be very protected and insulated and comfortable, and nothing bad could ever happen to me. And if that's the faith that you and I live, then it never requires us to trust God for anything. Because what we've done is trust ourselves to try to eliminate the possibility of any risk or danger or fear or pain that might come our way. People who truly experience the extraordinary in their lives are people who are willing to trust God fully, even when it means that they have to face difficult situations. Daniel was one of those people. So that's why we want to look at him today. So we're going to walk through a few verses at a time this passage and really ask questions. As I read through this passage, what jumps out is there's a number of things that Daniel does that really begs questions for us today, for us to ask ourselves about our trust in God. There are questions of trust today. So starting in verses 1 through 4, the first question that I want us to consider today is, do I trust God with my position in life? 
So starting in verse 1, it says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one from whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Again, avoidance. Daniel so distinguished himself among the uh, administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. So let me just back up a minute. We've been talking about a little bit about Israel's history the last couple of weeks, and we talked about them coming out of Egypt and the experience they had through the Red Sea and, and what they did in Jericho and all these things and their, their progress in moving forward. And last week we talked about Gideon. So if you fast forward way in, into Israel's story, now what's happened is they've kind of come full circle. They had it all, and now they've lost it all. They had the promised land, but they've given that away because of their own disobedience. And now they're being dominated. They're being occupied, and now they're really being controlled by the Babylonian Empire which at this point, King Darius is over that. And so because of that, this is what's kind of crazy about Daniel's position. Daniel's going about to be given a position that would be the equivalent of the prime minister of a nation. And he's not Babylonian. He's not from them. He doesn't even act like them. He doesn't talk like them. He does things differently. You read the first six chapters or five chapters of Daniel. He functions completely at a different rhythm than the people are surrounded. And he's the one that's about to get the position that everybody else wants. Why is that? It's because Daniel wasn't worried about the position. He was only focused on what God wanted for his life. He didn't vie for it. He didn't grasp for it. He didn't position himself for it. He didn't try for it. He was being given something that only God had the ability and authority to give in his life, his position. And that is a question for you and I to consider today. How much of my life, instead of trusting God for the position he wants to put me in, the influence he wants to give me, I spend my life orchestrating and maneuvering and positioning myself to get into the place that I want to be in life. In other words, I don't trust God that somehow he'll put me where I'm supposed to be and give me the influence and authority that he wants me to have. I take it on myself to make sure that it happens. That I put myself first instead of putting God first because I got to make sure I have the right position. See, that's, that's the opposite of the way God wants us to function. That's what James reminds us in James 4.10. He says, humble yourself before the Lord. And then what happens? He'll lift you up. Don't position and vie and control and try and make it happen and... He says, humble yourself. Let God be the one that puts you in the position you're supposed to be in. Daniel got that. It's an issue of trust. Do I trust that if I surrender my life fully to God, that when I do that, he will put me where I'm supposed to be. I will be in the position I'm supposed to be in. I will have the influence that God wants me to have. See, so many times you and I are tempted to try to work on our behalf, to try to make it happen, to try to get to the position where we want to be, the job, the career, the house, the relationship. We try to position ourselves instead of saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you know what's best for my life. A number of years ago when Kim and I were graduating, we were graduating from Bible college. So we're part of Foursquare. That's the denomination we're a part of. We went to Life Bible College, which is the primary uh, training institution for, for Foursquare. And so uh, coming out of that, as a senior at that time, we had a number of districts like we do today that oversee churches across the nation. And so in each one of those districts is a supervisor who oversees. At that point, they were overseeing probably three or 400 churches each. So at the end of the school year, as a senior, they had this 
basically, I think it's a job fair is what it is. The supervisors come in, the seniors sit down, they find out what opportunities are available in that part of the country, in that district, and then you see if there's a fit. So Kim and I were doing that, and so you kind of go down the line and you meet with all these district supervisors. And so we sat down with one couple, this supervisor and his wife, and so we began to explain kind of where we come through from, our history, what our passions were, things like that, just kind of saying, okay, what's next for us? And so after I finished kind of giving an explanation of who we are, I'll never forget what he said to me. Let me give you a little bit of background on what he was about to say to me. So my last name is Amstutz. Now in Foursquare among Foursquare leadership, Amstutz is a known commodity because of my dad, not because of me. Because of his influence in our movement, he's a missiologist, he's been a professor, he's done all kinds of things. And so when you say John Amstutz, which by the way, he's senior, technically not, but he's, the, he's my father, and so I have the same name. So when you say the word Amstutz to a leadership in Foursquare, they know the name, and it's a good thing. So after giving this explanation about what Kim and I are passionate about, he looks me in the eye and he says this. He goes, you got nothing to worry about. I said, what do you mean I have nothing to worry about? He goes, all you need to do is mention your name and every door will be open to you. I remember sitting there just stunned because I realized he didn't hear a word I said. All he saw was my last name. And I remember Kim and I walked away from that thinking, this can't be right. That the supervisor would tell me that it doesn't matter what my education, it doesn't matter what my theology is, it doesn't matter what my morality is. As long as my last name is Amstutz, I'll get anything that I want. That's what he was saying to me. And I remember from that, because in my life, I've always strived to, not in rebellion, but to be who God called me to be, because my dad is one person, and although I have the same name, I'm a different person. And I'm not going to use his name or my name to somehow get into a position that only God can grant me. Sometimes you and I are given that opportunity. I could work this. I've got an angle. I've got an inroad here. And if I do it, I'll be in the position that I want. The thing is, if I would have walked around saying to all the supervisors, hey, my name is Amstutz, I wouldn't have ever done anything for God in ministry in Foursquare because it would have been me doing it, not God. So the first question you want to have to ask, do I really trust God with the position in my life or do I take it upon myself to make it happen? Daniel had the ability to say, no, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God for where he wants to put me. Joseph had the same journey. Joseph ended up being the most powerful person in all of Egypt. The, the Pharaoh gave him that authority. Daniel was on his way to do the same thing. Two guys, similar stories. They submitted themselves to God and trusted him. Second thing is in verse 5 through 9. Second question is, do I trust God with my enemies? Just so you know, as we go through the passage, it gets a lot harder. It just does. So verse 5 says, Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has to do with something with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So what's, what's Daniel doing? Absolutely nothing wrong. He's praying to God. He's following God. He's submitting himself to it. And now he's got some enemies for doing absolutely nothing wrong. Now he's automatically got 120 people that don't like him. Why? Because they want the position that he's about to get. And they don't want that to happen. So they're taking matters into their own hands to do something to stop that from happening so they can have the power. 
And you and I will read through this story and you will never find one place, one place where Daniel defends himself. You'll never find one place where Daniel goes after his enemies to somehow try to make it, turn the tables on them to kind of stop what they're doing. He never defends himself against his enemies because he's never distracted by them. He's not concerned with who his enemies are. He's only concerned with who his God is. And that's important for you and I when it comes to trusting God. I guarantee if you choose to follow Jesus in your life, you will have enemies. And you don't even have to try. It just will happen. The question is, what will you do with the enemies that you have? Will you make them the focus of your life? Will you allow them to be the distraction that pulls you away from what God's doing? Or will you allow the God of the universe to be the God of the universe and be your defender? Because I can guarantee you, God is more powerful than you are. God can take care of your enemies better than anything you can ever do in response to them. And Daniel understood that. That's why Daniel didn't react to his enemies. He stayed focused on what he was doing. He didn't defend himself. But so many times in our life, we end up doing that. We end up biting the bait that our enemies put out. And all of our enemies want is a reaction. That's what they want. They want us to respond. They want us to react in a way so that something bad might happen or that we will be distracted from what's really going on. And this is something that happens all the time. It happens when we're kids. People set themselves up. We set ourselves up as enemies of each other. And we get distracted by what people say and do to us and never really fully focus on what God's wanting to do in our life. Because it's not about the other people and their distraction and the enemy. It's about what God is doing. That's the focus. Anybody ever been made fun of as a kid? For your appearance or something you said? Yeah, all of us have. We've all been subjected to that. For me, I remember traumatic me, but very learning experience was when I was in like third grade. And I went through a really big growth spurt for some reason at that time. And we didn't have a lot of money, so... My parents couldn't replace my pants. I was outgrowing them faster than they could buy them. And so no exaggeration that I was going to school with, with pants that were probably almost five inches from my top of my ankle up. They looked like I was wearing capris when capris weren't even in. I wasn't rolling anything up. That's just what they were. And so, so for some reason, the group of kids thought that they, it was their, their, their fun time at the end of school when I walked by a certain corner on the way home that they would just wait for me. And then every time I'd walk by... They'd start yelling, oh, here comes high waters. He's waiting for a flood. Anybody know that? You know, guys, you grew fast. Yeah. And so every day they do that. And I would, then the rest of the way home, I would just be so angry. And I would get home and I would tell my mom, I said, you know what they said to me? And I'd be so embarrassed and so upset about all this. And this is not the only time throughout my, my growing up, there would be incidents like that. I would come home and I'd tell my parents, I'm so mad. We need to do something. You need to call the school. You need to come and talk to these people. You need to call their parents. And even though all the ideas I came up with what my parents were supposed to do, they always said the same thing. I said, you know what you need to do? Ignore them. Don't you hate that advice? Anybody like me? That's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted them to go after them. No, my mom said, no, you need to ignore them. And if you ignore them, they'll stop. Now, I didn't believe that. But I said, fine, that's what you said. I'm not getting any help from home, so I might as well try what they're going to do. So I ignored them. And it took them three days to stop making fun of me. Because I didn't react. I didn't say anything. I didn't get mad anymore. I just kept walking. And finally, they just got tired. I thought, he's not reacting. Let's go find some other high water to make fun of. <laughs> and life was a lot more peaceful for me after that. See, the same thing is true with our enemies. Daniel understood this. If Daniel made those 120 his focus, he would have lost sight of who God is. And it wouldn't have been about God anymore. It would have been about Daniel. It would have been about Daniel somehow making things right, or making things even, or making things fair, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. 
He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then verse 19, he says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I think God's got this revenge thing down a lot better than we do. He'll make sure that you and I are taken care of if we don't get focused on our enemies, but we keep our focus on him. The third question that we have to ask ourselves about trust in terms of Daniel's journey is, do I trust God when the rules change? So remember, Daniel's doing what he's always done. He's obeying God. He's praying. And then it says in verse 10, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Nothing changed for Daniel. It didn't matter what decree the king put in act. It didn't matter about the Medes and Persians. It didn't matter about how this couldn't be changed. It didn't matter about the 120 enemies. Daniel went home and did what he did every single day. Because it didn't matter to Daniel if the rules changed. It wasn't going to change who God is. It wasn't going to change who he was. Because his focus wasn't on the rules of man. His focus was, was on what God was doing in his life. And because of that, he didn't get distracted. He trusted God fully, even when the rules changed. You and I walk through that many times in our life, when the rules change. When things are going the way we want them to, and we like the way that they're going, then suddenly they change. You and I have a hard time with that. Because we have a tendency to want to change when the rules change. When the culture tells us we can't do something, or we're supposed to do something a certain way, we want to change. Why? Because we want people to like us. We don't want enemies. We don't want people to turn on us. So we begin to change who we are because the rules have changed. Now, that's not to mean that you and I take some stance that in your face to the culture to try to be different just to be different. But it's you and I maintaining the focus that I don't change regardless of what changes around me because of who God is. And understanding that. When pressure is applied, when the rules change, when the heat gets turned up, what happens in life? Do I trust that God is still in control of my life or do somehow I change and I cave under the pressure? Daniel knew, and he obviously knew what the punishment would be for not changing, for staying true to what God called him to, even though the rules had changed. How many times in our life do we do that? See, what God desires for all of us is that the world will change. And culture is good and bad, but some things in the culture are bad that will try to fight against our understanding of who God is and following Him. And so in that, we have to be willing to say, you know what, there are non-negotiables that I won't change even if it means it's going to cost me dearly. I know who God is and I know He's real, therefore I won't change. Because God never changes. 1970, there were one million Christians in China. One million is a good number, not when you're a a nation that's close to a billion people. One million. And why is it one million? Because in the 60s, China went through what's called the Cultural Revolution. And that is where the government basically weeded out a lot of the Christians and either tormented them, booted them out of the country, or killed them as a part of this change in China. But there were one million Christians that remained. And one million Christians that said, even if the government says, I can't follow Christ, I'm still following Christ. I may have to go underground. I may have to meet secretly, but I'm still going to read the scriptures. I'm still going to let the Holy Spirit transform my life. I'm still going to be committed to following Jesus, regardless of what the government says or does to me. Fast forward to today. The last estimate of how many Christians there are in China is over 130 million people. 
See, we haven't realized that the church is growing fastest in the world right now. One of the fastest growing areas is China. Communist China that's now actually coming out of this. But all those years of oppression and communism. And oh no, the sky is falling at the same time the the gospel has spread. Why? Because in 1970, a million people said, I won't change because the rules have changed. See, that's what happens. That's extraordinary. See, that's extraordinary. From 1 million to 130 million people? Why? Because God does extraordinary things through people who actually trust him with their lives. And in our nation, that can be true. We have a different, we don't have a communist government, but we have a tendency to cave in to the world that we live in. But what if someone could look at your life and not because you're doing this to get in their face, but you're doing this out of a conviction to follow God. Someone looks at your life and says, wow, man, the rules change, but you are consistent. You don't change. You, you must have a trust and a faith that goes beyond anything I understand. And people begin to ask questions. God can do extraordinary things, which leads to the fourth thing. Again, it doesn't get any easier. Look, verse 11, verse 15, the next question is, do I trust God when things are unfair? If you could take any point out of the message today, and it was my personal preference, this would be the one. But look at the, the passage. Starting in verse 11, it says, Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So he's doing what he's always done. He's praying. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about, uh, about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that a king issues can be changed. The king was stuck by his own word. He couldn't change anything. But Daniel didn't do anything wrong. And this is where, if you and I get to this part, and this is kind of the hard thing. When you and I read through Scripture, we know the end. We know the end of the story. And so when you know the end of the story, it's really easy to read through the difficult parts because, oh, I know it's going to end. But what if the story ends right here? This is not fair. Because Daniel's doing what God called him to do. He's being obedient. He's praying. He's connecting with God. He's being faithful. He's doing all the things that we are supposed to be doing. And somehow it's still not working because now he's actually broken the law. And we all know what's going to come next in the story. That's not fair. That's not justice. That's not right. Anybody ever said any of those phrases in your life? My favorite phrase growing up was, it's not fair. That's the mantra, right? It's not fair. We look around at things and it's not fair. And so when you do this and do that and you line up and you check off the list and things don't go the way you're supposed to, you look at God and say, God, that's not fair. Not once in this story does Daniel ever stop and say, that's not fair. Never once in the story, by the way, when you look through Joseph, same peril, does ever Joseph stop and say, that's not fair. They trusted God. They trusted God because they knew that even though the circumstances seemed unfair, that ultimately God was in control of what was going on. But just as enemies become a distraction, so does this thing called justice. And let me explain what I mean by justice. See, there's, there's really two understandings of justice. There's what we call justice, and then there's God's justice. And most of the times when we're saying, it's unfair, I want justice, we're wanting our kind of justice, which means 
that when we get our kind of justice, there's something still unfair in the mix because it's unfair to somebody else. God's justice is the only justice that is whole and complete because his justice is based on what he requires for righteousness, which, which Jesus took care of on the cross. That's the ultimate justice. But you and I cry, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And so for Daniel to cry, it's not fair, it's not fair. What's not fair is the symbol hanging on the wall behind me. That's not fair. That's not fair that the God of the universe sent his son into the world to die on the cross for you and I because we're sinners. That's not fair to Jesus. And when you and I intersect the cross and we realize the injustice that Jesus received on our behalf to appease God's justice, you and I never have the right to say it's unfair again. Because God has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Daniel didn't get sidetracked. He stayed focused. He didn't get distracted. He wasn't like the little boy playing right field in Little League Baseball and got so bored because the balls never hit to him that he starts following the butterfly. Anybody seen that kid before? Because he can't focus on what's going on there because it gets boring to him or something's happening that he sees the butterfly going around and he goes after it and then guess what happens? The ball gets hit to him and he misses it. See, that's the unfair thing that we go after. It's like, oh, it's unfair, it's unfair. And God says, no, focus on me. Because when we do that, we lose our attention, gets pulled to something away. And when that happens, we miss out on the extraordinary moment that God is bringing into our lives. Because we've gone down this trail that ultimately, even if we think it becomes fair for us, it'll be unfair for somebody else. Because our fairness and our justice goes as far as our lives. See, God's justice is about all people. And so understanding that question, moving on from there to the next question, number five. Again, it's not getting easier. This is where, this is where the rubber meets the road. Verse 16 to verse 23. Do I trust God with my life? Simple question, hard answer. Do I really trust God fully with my life? So here we go. Verse 16. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. He could not sleep. And at the first uh, light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Let me stop right there for a moment. Do you see what's happening? This is a pagan king who doesn't have a concept of who God is. And he is up all night in turmoil, believing somehow that Daniel's God is going to deliver him. No one has ever been delivered from the lion's den. In fact, you will read in the story further on that when when people got thrown into the lion's den, this was structured in a way that literally the, the lions were so ravenous and so hungry that people's bodies didn't even touch the floor of the den before they were devoured. And this king knows that's the way it works. Yet all night long he's up and he runs to the den to ask to see if Daniel's still alive. What is he expressing? faith. A pagan king is showing trust in a God that he doesn't even know. Why? Because Daniel has trusted God. Therefore, it's starting to spread. So going on looking at verse 21, Daniel answered, O king, live forever. Can you imagine? His voice comes from this pit. He says, my God sent angels and he shut the mouths of the lion. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. 
The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. He trusted God and God delivered him. Now here's the hard part. Daniel experienced the extraordinary because he was in the lion's den. You and I want to experience the extraordinary and never go in the lion's den. Right? We, we, want, to, we want it safe and easy, but we want the extraordinary. But we don't want anything scary. You and I have to go through something extraordinary to experience the extraordinary. You and I can't just live ordinary lives and expect God to do extraordinary things. That's why when you read through the book of Acts and you read through the Gospels and you see miracles happen, you see all these crazy things, they were, they were done in contexts where there was desperation, where there was pain, where there was suffering, where there was this hunger for God to do something. We'd rather God do it within our schedule an hour and a half on Sunday morning because I got football this afternoon, even though it's preseason. I'm not judging anybody, okay? But just so you understand, that's the way, that's our mindset. We want God to fit in a box, but we don't want to have to risk for it. We don't want to have to live dangerously. Daniel was so focused on God that he trusted God, even in the lion's den. He didn't come out with a scratch on him. Can you imagine, what was he doing? Just petting the lions all night as his friends? I don't know. That's wild. Because he trusted God. Because Daniel had already surrendered everything to God. His life was about following God. There was nothing that he held back from God. Nothing that he would control for himself. He had surrendered fully his entire life to God. So I can guarantee you, understanding the way the people of God through scriptures followed him, that when Daniel went into that den, he did not know if he was coming out dead or alive. He didn't know what God was going to do. But he was okay with that. Because he never, you never hear him scream. You never hear him cry out for help and for mercy because God don't want to die. Because in Daniel's mind, it was settled. If I die that's okay. God's still in control. If I live, that's okay. God's still in control. It was determined because he had already surrendered fully to God. And that's the question you and I almost have to answer almost every day of our lives. Will I surrender everything that I am, all that I have for God and respond obediently to whatever he calls me to do? Am I willing to do that? That's a daily question because Jesus said what? To take up our cross daily. He said what? That if you want to find life, you have to lose yours. You have to give it up. You have to surrender it. And for many of us, we never find life because we won't give up the life that we have. I'll tell you about one of my good friends. His name is Jeremy. Jeremy, about probably five, six years ago, we were in a small group together. And Jeremy is the epitome of consistency. So Jeremy was pretty much born and raised in Newburgh, Oregon, and as he grew up, he went through the schools in Newburgh. And then when he got out of school, right out of high school, he got a job. And, and when I met him, he had that job for like 15 years. He had worked his way up in the company. He had a great wife and three young boys. And, and he had a house and he had cars and he had everything. And he was like Mr. Consistency, just plugging away, never took, taking a big risk in his life, just kind of living life. And as we were in this small group together and we were talking through things in life, there's something that came to the surface that God had told he and his wife years before. And he told them that he wanted them to move to the Philippines to care for orphans. But through the circumstances of life and different things, it kind of pushed to the back burner. And so they never really had taken that seriously until we were in this small group. And we were talking about some challenging things about just jumping all in and following Jesus. So in the context of that small group, he and his wife, they began to pray and they realized that they needed to respond to what God has said. And what God was saying to them was, you have to be willing to give up everything to follow me. So Mr. Consistency, Jeremy, he quits his job of 15 years, good paying, worked his way up in the company, a lot of favor. He sells his house. He sells his cars, other stuff they give away. Literally, 
they left for the Philippines with enough money to buy their ticket and they had raised funds, not even really enough to support them fully, but they were all in. They sold everything. They had nothing left. And they were there for about three years and they served God's purpose and they cared for orphans and then God called them back to the U.S. And I remember Jeremy and his wife coming back with their kids. They came back and you're thinking, oh, this is a great story, right? Because they come back and they have all this stuff. No, they came back with what they left with. Nothing. They didn't have a house. They didn't have a car. They had nothing. But I watched how they trusted God and over probably six to eight months, they had cars, they had a place to live. Jeremy had a job. All these things that God began to provide for them for. Because at one point, they gave it all away. It's kind of why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all that stuff you think is important, I'll take care of that. I'll take care of that, but make me the priority. Are you and I willing to give up our life, to give everything away to follow Jesus? She said, well, I don't know if God asks me. God asks all of us to give everything we have for him. And if we live with an open hand and realize it doesn't belong to me anyway, anyway, it's really easy to say, okay, God, I'll give it away. Just slightly challenging. Last one. We'll move on here. Number six. Verse 24 to 28. Do I trust God's means for God's purpose? In other words, do I trust that God's going to get me to the destination he wants me to get there, but there's a process that I have to go through first that I also have to trust in? I trust that God knows what he's doing now because I trust God will know what he's doing tomorrow. Verse 24, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and their children. Every time I read that verse, I can't imagine what it would be to be one of those kids and turn and look at your dad and say, good job, dad. Thanks for getting me into this situation. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and also the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's a pagan king telling all the people, and remember, this is the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire. This is, this is the controlling force in the world at this time. He issues a decree that says, everybody gets to follow Daniel's God now because he's the real God. I can guarantee when Daniel is kneeling in his room and he was praying daily, this was not Daniel's plan. This was God's plan. Because he knew that in Daniel, Daniel would trust him all the way through the difficulties and the struggles and the lion's den. Because at one point, Darius would realize that God is the living God, is the true God. And he would send that out so that it even says people of all these nations that now was controlled by this empire. Now they got to hear about the true God. Why? Because one man said, I'll trust God. One man, I'll trust God. That's powerful. That's extraordinary. And you and I need to understand that's the way God works. That God wants to do the extraordinary things, not tomorrow, but he does extraordinary things today if we'll trust him in the process of our life, that he knows what he's doing. Because the destination is as important as the journey together. They're combined together. It's not just, oh, I finally arrived. Ta-da. It's getting us there that is just as important as actually getting there. And the process that God wants to do extraordinary things doesn't start tomorrow. It starts today by you and I trusting him every single day of our lives with everything. Because it's through the trust that God shapes us and changes us 
so that in those moments he can do extraordinary things through us. Daniel got that. That's why we have thousands of years later, we have this history of Daniel's life. Why? Because Daniel trusted God with his life. See, you and I have to be willing to trust God that he will get us to where he wants us to go, but he will get us there the way he wants to get us there. It's submitting to the process. It's letting God shape the the journey that we're on and submitting to it every single day. We want to fast forward to the end, but God says, no, it's the journey I have you on to lead you to the place where I want you to be. It's true for us as individuals. It's true for us as a church. We're on a journey. And I know a lot of people are like, well, what's going on in the church? We're on a journey. And underneath the surface right now, I'll talk about in a few weeks, there's a lot of great stuff. One of the things that's happening in our church is we are becoming healthy relationally. We're becoming healthy from the ground up. There's a lot of great stuff. We don't have a lot of bells and whistles, a lot of stuff to present, but that's okay. We're becoming healthy because God is building something in a process that's leading us to his destination because Jesus is the Lord of new hope. And he has a plan for us. So, but understanding that, that you and I have to be willing to submit submit to a journey that may not be easy. It may not be pleasant. It may be not the one that you and I would choose, but it's the one that God will use to get us to where we're supposed to be. There's this amazing camp in the middle, really in the middle of nowhere, nowhere in central Oregon. It's called, used to be called Wild Horse Canyons. Now it's called Washington Family Ranch. It's a young life camp. It is 66,000 acres of land. It is the biggest camp I've ever seen in my life. And it's amazing. It has like the longest zip line in the state of Oregon. It's got a huge sports complex. It's like, it's like the dream camp that you could ever think of. And so we use that, when we were in Oregon, we use that for a men's retreat and women's retreat. And it's, the story behind it is amazing because it used to be a part of a cult years ago that was in the 80s. And Rajneesh was the head of the cult. Some of you have heard of him. But anyway, what happened is the government took his land and then they sold it at auction. A Christian bought it and then turned around and donated it to Young Life. It's crazy, crazy story. So we would go to that camp. And here's the challenge, though. From where we lived in Newburgh to where that camp was, was five to six hours on a bus. And if you've ever driven in Oregon, you know, we use freeways all the time. Even if you're like going a mile, you find a way to get to the freeway. In Oregon, there's not as many freeways. That means that you end up on a lot of two-lane roads with a lot of curves. So just think about five or six hours in a bus on roads and curves. And you're wondering when in the world you're going to get there. And, you know, it's a Friday, so you've been working all day. You get off work and then you get in, you know, a a bus with a bunch of stinky guys. And you're on this journey and you're like, are we ever going to get there? And, but this amazing thing happened when all these guys got on these buses. Because I, we heard about the complaints. Can I just drive my own car? It's so much more comfortable. No, we want you to go on the bus. So as you're going, what happens is that your complaints, you start to complain, you know, I don't like the bus, but then you start to complain to the guy next to you who's also complaining and you don't know him. But you have this common ground, it's called complaint. And out of that complaint becomes these conversations that start to happen all over these buses. And after five or six hours in a bus, when we got there about 10 at night, guys that never knew each other before were like lifelong friends. And it's not something that we could have like orchestrated and done just right. But by the time we got to the retreat for our men... They were ready to hear from God. They were ready to engage in authentic relationships with each other. And the weekends that we had there were absolutely profound. And I know it's part of the process is because we had to go five or six hours on a bus together. Because that journey prepared us for what was going to happen when we actually got there. The same thing is true as we truly trust God in our life. He's going to have us on a journey. And sometimes you're going to think, this is way too long. This is way too painful. I don't like this. I want another option. But God says, there is no other option. You have to trust me. Daniel trusted God. God did extraordinary things. 
And I'm convinced that when we read stuff from the Bible, it's not exclusive to Bible times. It's true of God's people throughout the centuries, throughout history. God does extraordinary things today through people who truly trust him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for, again, another amazing example of what you can do through the lives of people who are ordinary just like us. Daniel was an ordinary man who simply chose to trust you. And because of that, we see this amazing story unfold. Daniel saved a nation empire transformed because of trust. So I would ask and I would pray that today you would help us to not only see and to know and to learn about Daniel's journey, but that we would embrace the same journey. I don't know where each one of us are at today, but I know that all of us are struggling with that. If there's been that moment in our life where we've said, God, I want to follow you, that there's always those trust issues for us every single day. And I pray that today, maybe some of us, Lord, we're, we're distracted by enemies. We're distracted by justice and fairness. And we've gotten off track and we've lost sight of who you are. I pray today we would get back on track. We would eliminate the distractions and we would be willing to surrender ourselves fully to you, Lord. And in doing doing that, Lord Jesus, we would see you do extraordinary things through our lives. Not for us, but through us. Because ultimately, Lord, it's about your glory and what you want to do through us to bring glory to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness and your work in our lives. In your name, amen.